Our sermon text for this morning is Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 948 and 949. I will be reading the entire chapter of Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned to be eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Over my years of being a Christian, I've heard Christians be quite dogmatic about things that aren't very important. We had some friends a long time ago now who called me 
Sunday afternoon after the service, and they were very upset that there were greens around Christmas time in the auditorium. I suppose that's equal to the person who's very upset if there aren't greens during Christmas time. I know another pastor who candidated at a church. He was very surprised because an important question for the search committee was whether he believed that fresh bread should be baked every day because the Bible says, give us this day our daily bread. So we can easily get sidetracked and make secondary issues important. We can be distracted from our calling as Christians, which is to spread the gospel, to make disciples, and to glorify God. Of course, errors can be made on the more liberal side as well. Sometimes those who are raised in a more restrictive background go to the other side and display an illegitimate freedom. I've been in circles, I don't know about you, where Christians express their freedom by cussing. They sound just like people in the world, and they're proud of it. I had friends who were invited to a party. This is a party of believers where they invited a male stripper to go come to the party. I heard about it because I was in a circle of friends where they were debating whether that was okay. But certainly, there's no doubt over the matter. That's an example, isn't it, of freedom running amok. I remember another occasion where Diane and I went to someone's house for dinner, and they asked us if we wanted to drink. And we said, no, thank you. And the husband immediately said to us, that won't be any fun. I didn't know that we couldn't have fun together if we didn't drink with them. Or I think of a case where a Christian suggested that perhaps it's okay to look at pornography because that is sort of like looking at art. Well, there are a lot of rationalizations for sin, and that one certainly counts for its creativity. So the Christian life is filled with many dangers and toils and snares. We can get off on one side or the other, and I think this passage in Romans 14 helps us to understand these things better. Let's look at our passage for the day. Uh, I do want to say that there's some, some difficult things in this passage, so let's just ask the Lord to help us and to attend to it. And uh, you evaluate what I say. I have a little bit of a different take on some parts of it. And uh, I don't want you to believe what I say, but to put your trust in God's Word. <clears throat> I want to say some things. Uh, I wanted Greg to read the first verses as well. I just want to review a little bit from last week because the passages are so uh, bound together. We saw last week that Paul describes some Christians as weak and he describes them as weak because they're weaker in faith. He means just what he says when he says they're weak. What, what does weaker faith look like? How does it manifest itself? Weaker Christians try to enforce rules that God doesn't require. 
in this passage in particular, we saw that we Christians believed it was wrong to eat foods that were forbidden in the Old Testament. You can read about that in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. So they, they thought it was wrong. What did that mean specifically? They, they would think it would be wrong if it still applied to today to eat things like pork chops or scallops or crab or shrimp and that sort of thing. Those foods were forbidden. They, the weak also believed that one should observe the Sabbath. They thought the Sabbath was an eternal command of God. So they believed that Christians should rest on Saturday. The Sabbath was on Saturday. They should rest on Saturday in accord with that command. The weak Christians did not require these rules for salvation. Because if that were the case, they'd be heretics. Paul wouldn't put up with that, as I said last week. But they, they, they probably believed that you'd be a better Christian, a more fruitful Christian, a more dynamic Christian, a, a growing Christian, if you observed these rules. That just reminds me to say in the middle of the sermon, just to say a word to you if you're an unbeliever with us. We're looking at a very particular issue today. Both the weak and the strong trusted in Jesus for their salvation. So if you're an unbeliever, that's our main message as a church. Our main message is that you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by how good you are. You're not saved by your baptism or your church attendance. We believe here at Clifton Baptist that God saves us through Jesus Christ. God sent his son. His son became a man. His son lived a perfect life. He always pleased God. He gave his life on the cross. That's what we celebrate today. He gave his life on the cross so that we who are sinners could have life. He took the wrath we deserved. As we trust in him, as we put ourselves under his lordship, we're saved, not because of what we've done, but what he's done for us. Both the weak and the strong, it's a big issue in these verses, put themselves under Christ's lordship. Both the weak and the strong did not believe their goodness saved them. They both believed that God saved them in Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say in verses 1 through 12 to the weak and strong? Welcome one another. Accept one another. Love one another. Don't despise and judge one another. At the same time, it is clear that Paul agrees with the strong theologically on the particular issues that we're looking at. Even though he agrees, isn't this interesting? The weak are wrong. And yet, Paul says, accept them. Welcome them. Don't get in debates with them. Because after all, what we eat and drink and which days we worship on, they're ultimately not a big deal. Don't don't make a big deal of something that's not a big deal, Paul is saying. So he says in verse 6, make up your own mind on these matters. Have your own conviction. There's freedom on secondary matters in the church of Jesus Christ. Both the strong and the weak agreed on moral norms. They both believed stealing was wrong, murder's wrong, idolatry's wrong, adultery's wrong. There's, there's no dispute on what's clearly revealed in Scripture. We're talking about secondary matters. 
So Paul says about these secondary matters, don't get overly excited about them. Don't, don't focus on them. Do you? Do you focus on secondary things? Are you, are you, are you kind of inclined in your personality? Do you have a personality that wants to debate on the debatable instead of focusing on the center? Paul's admonitions are especially for the strong. Don't grind the weak into the ground. We'll say more about this, but, but I want to, I want to say something else about the weak being wrong. Because actually when you read this passage, maybe when we read it out loud or maybe you haven't looked at this passage a lot, maybe you miss the truth that Paul thinks the weak are wrong. Because actually, he's, he's rather subtle about it, isn't he? He doesn't come right out and say, the weak are wrong and the strong are right. You've noticed that? He doesn't, he doesn't put it that way. Why doesn't he put it that way? Because he's mainly worried about the strong and their arrogance and their lack of love. So, so he puts it more subtly, but it's there. How do we know he thinks the weak are wrong? Because he says, it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter what day you worship on. Clearly, he's not siding with the weak theologically. And that, that brings us to our passage for, to, for today, verse 14. Paul says there, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Obviously, the weak didn't agree with that statement, did they? The weak believed certain foods were unclean. But Paul says, no foods are unclean. So Paul directly contradicts the view of the weak, even though he doesn't mention them there. It's clear in the context that he's talking about foods. And he's saying, all foods are clean. Verse 20, he makes the same comment. And again, he's talking about foods in context. Everything is clean. No foods are defiled or sinful to eat. The Old Testament regulations about food are no longer binding upon us now that Jesus Christ has come, now that the new covenant has arrived. But Paul doesn't kick dirt in the face of the weak. As I said earlier, he's most worried about the strong in these verses. So now we're finally ready to look at our passage. What is Paul's main concern in these verses? What is he mainly worried about? And I think he says the same thing three different ways, and I think it's the main point of our passage. The main thing he's worried about is that the strong will destroy the weak. Let's look at verse 15. He says there, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. I believe most evangelicals misread what Paul says here. They think that Paul is talking about making the strong making the weak feel bad. But the word destroy is the key to understanding what Paul talks about here. And that is Paul's typical word for eternal destruction. Paul's not just talking about hurting a weak person's spiritual life. Well, he is talking about that, but he's talking about absolutely destroying them, about sending them to hell. 
That's the word he uses. He's not just worried about lack of fruitfulness or lack of joy in the week. He's worried that the strong will destroy the weak eternally. That the weak will go to hell because of the strong's actions. Now, let me back up. This is what makes it hard. I don't think true Christians could go to hell, okay? I'm not going there. But I can't, I'm not going to attend to that right this moment. I'll get to it later. But that Paul's main concern is the salvation of the weak, I think is repeated in verse 20. He says again, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. He uses the word destroy again. Actually, it's not the same word for destroy. It's a different word for destroy, but they mean the same thing. They're synonyms. And, and what Paul means, you don't need to know the original language to understand this. What Paul means by the word destroy is he means destroy. Don't ruin or wreck the weak. It's a pretty clear word, isn't it? Don't wreck their spiritual life. Don't behave in such a way that they lose their faith. Verse 13. Really, he begins the passage. So this is the third time. The third time he makes that same main point. Never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, some people think this means just don't offend a fellow Christian. Well, of course it does mean that, but what kind of offense? I would argue that he means hindrances or stumbling blocks that prevent a person from being saved. That that fits with the language of destroy. In fact, that's how I think the word hindrance and stumbling block, the words that are used here, are typically used in the New Testament as well. So he's saying in verse 13, don't do anything that will cause the weak to stumble or to lose their faith. Now, here's a a parallel passage in Matthew 18, where Jesus uses the same language of stumbling block. Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. And I think Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18 the very same thing Paul is. So these are very helpful verses. I'm actually going to read it in the NIV instead of the ESV because I think the NIV translation is better. It shows us that the same words are being used a little more clearly. Here's what he says. If anyone causes, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, so there's our word, It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. Well, look, he's not just talking about making this uh, little one feel bad, is he? He's talking about them stumbling and being destroyed. How bad is it? He says it's so bad that it would be best if a millstone were tied around the neck of the person who caused them to stumble and they'd be thrown in the water. So he's not just talking about someone being offended. He's talking about destroying another person. He says that's an awful and terrible thing. I think it means that the person affected renounces the faith and they turn away from Jesus. So this is no little matter, is it? This is a matter of great consequence. We see again that salvation is at stake. Let's look at another text just briefly. 
probably better if I just read it, given the time. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, by the way, as many of you know, are parallel chapters in many respects, although there are differences. But this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. And the word win means, of course, to save, doesn't it? So we see it again, don't we? To the weak, I became weak in order to win so that ultimately they're saved. So they make it to the end. So what's the danger here? The strong were in danger of harming the weak so that they would be destroyed. So if that's right, how is a weak person destroyed? What happens to a weak person? Remember, I'm going to answer later, can a true Christian be damned? And I'm going to say no. But let's just look at this passage. What happens to a weak person so that they could end up in hell? I mean, after all, we're talking about what day to worship on and what to eat. How could that lead to discussions about hell? Isn't, isn't that kind of over the top? Doesn't that seem rather implausible? We're, we're talking about what to have for lunch and, and then it's, then we're talking about who's going to hell. I think Paul answers that question in verse 23, the last verse. He says there, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not of faith. So how is a weak person destroyed? How does the weak person stumble when they act contrary to faith? If they eat food and they believe it is wrong to do so, then, Paul says, they're condemned. And and notice the word here, condemned. That's a word regularly used for the final judgment. It's used seven times in the epistles, and it's always used for the final judgment. So here we see it again. He's talking about heaven and hell here. But that brings us back, at least in my mind, I don't know what you're thinking, why would Paul say that the weak will go to hell if they violate their conscience? Is he really saying if they violate their conscience one time they're going to hell, for example? No, no, I don't think that is what he's saying. So I think, I think here is the explanation, at least this is my attempt. The strong must be gentle with the weak. They must respect their opinions. The weak will be destroyed, they'll go to hell, if they try to live according to the conscience of the strong and violate their own consciences. So, so let me give an example. If a weak person thinks it's absolutely wrong and sinful to drink alcohol, but they start drinking it under the influence of the strong, they are in a very dangerous place. Why? Because they're not living according to their own convictions and their own faith. They've yielded the control of their life to the opinions of another. They're not living according to the faith God has given them. When that happens, however... The center, the center of who you are, will not hold. You will lose who you are if your life is dictated by the beliefs of other people. Once you give up your own conscience 
and you don't live by the faith God has given you, you will be vulnerable to every false teaching and every false lifestyle that comes along. You will be like a feather in the wind, blown here and there. Because you see, you've surrendered your own faith now. You're not living on the basis of your own convictions. Who are you anymore? You'll lose your own integrity. You'll be adrift in your life. Well, does this have anything to do with real life? Um, I can say that there were periods in my life, I don't think I've gotten there all the way, but there were periods in my life, even with people I greatly respected, where I sensed this happening to me. I started to believe certain things because I respected that person. But the Lord has helped me in every case, and I expect he's helped you as well, as well to pull back and say, wait a minute, I don't think that's what the Bible says, though I respect that person greatly. Because I can't live based on someone else's opinions, no matter how much I respect them. We have to live based on the faith that God has given us and our understanding of things. Otherwise, we're at others' mercy. So, if this happens, it's a dangerous place to be in because there's no anchor for your life anymore. And you could start giving in to things that are evil as well. It could start with something innocent like just eating certain foods and drinking certain things. But you can see, I think you can see, I hope you can see, it can progress to other things. Because if your convictions are no longer your own, then you could begin to give in to sin, sexual sin, all kinds of sin, following the consciences of others. Because you're not living by your own faith and your own convictions anymore. That's what Paul's worried about. So he says to the strong, don't pressure the weak to change. Give them space to follow their own consciences. Don't crush them. Do you do this? Trust you don't. Don't crush them with your freer conscience. So you see, I would say that, <clears throat> I would say that often the way this passage is applied doesn't really relate to what Paul particularly has in mind. Sometimes two Christians just disagree on a certain matter, but, but the one who's more conservative isn't necessarily weak. They're never going to believe what the strong says. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> They're never going to believe what the strong says. They're really not weak. They just disagree. He's talking about people who are weak and vulnerable in their faith, not two people who dogmatically have different opinions and never the twain shall meet, which is how this passage, I think, is often explained. So the application for us is clear. We ought not to focus on our rights and liberties as Christians. We should consider what will edify and strengthen other believers in our body, especially those who are weaker and more vulnerable in the faith. So I think Paul makes four points here, just four practical points for the strong relative to the weak, and I'm going to speak to them quickly. First, he says, act in love toward fellow believers. Verse 15 says, if we're not walking in love, if other believers are grieved, if they're hurt in their own spiritual life by our actions, then we ought not to do such a thing. Again, Paul's not thinking of a situation where two believers simply disagree. He's thinking of a person who's weaker. 
So ask God to give you discernment. It takes discernment to apply scripture, doesn't it? Are you you around a person who's weaker and more vulnerable in the faith? Our job isn't to make them more radical or to be provocative around them, but to nurture them and to cherish them and to encourage them. So we consider who we're with. That's not hypocritical. That's love, isn't it? Who are we with? What do they need at the time? What would build this other person up? It's not our job to pursue our own rights. As he says in verse 20, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You just don't want to provoke a person on a secondary issue. Or verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Life isn't about expressing ourselves and being authentic always to our own desires. That's very American, isn't it? We have to be authentic. I have to tell people what I think. Well, not always. We should be willing to give up eating and drinking what we wish in context where there are weaker people there. Paul doesn't envision a situation, by the way, where the strong never partake of these things. He's speaking somewhat hyperbolically when he says, I'll never eat meat or drink wine again. But in those contexts, he's saying, don't injure the weak, but think of how they can be encouraged in the faith. Second, Paul says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So what motivates you in your life? Are you living to strengthen others in the Lord? We want to orient our lives so that we are serving Christ in whatever we do. So we're bringing him glory. And Paul says that means, that means thinking about what's approved among men. And, and clearly he has the weak in mind as well, doesn't he? He's not talking about pleasing men. See, sometimes the strong think this way, right? I'm just going to do whatever I want. I don't really care what the other people think. But Paul says there's a place for thinking, what is approved among men? What's, what's, what's respectable in this situation and helpful and edifying? Our goal shouldn't be to shock other people and to be provocative and to show how daring we are. You know, we have to watch it in this day and age with something like tweets. I read a, I read a tweet recently from a prominent Christian leader, nobody in Louisville, by the way, but I read a tweet from a prominent Christian leader that was certainly designed to shock, but it wasn't edifying and it wasn't helpful. It wasn't that it was sinful per se. It just wasn't an edifying and helpful thing to say. We ought to be thinking, right, of what's acceptable and edifying to others as Christians. Instead of thinking, How can I provoke others? How can I be more radical? Am I considering, are you considering the impact of my life and decision on others? Am I thinking, how can I build and strengthen someone else up? That's what he wants the strong to think about and all of us to think about. Third, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So we should seek to do what brings peace and edification in the body. If you meet a fellow believer who has a really strong opinion 
on a secondary issue, often the best thing to do is to say nothing. Just let them say their opinion. We don't always have to tell people what we believe about something, do we? Let, let them say what they believe. And if you get to know them and they know that you love them and that you care about them, then later, perhaps, if it's helpful, you can tell them you have a different opinion. We're not obligated to say always what we believe about everything. The Lord will give us discernment, won't he? The most helpful thing for this person right now is just to listen to them. Let them express their view, even if you think it's not correct. If it's not a kingdom issue, if it's not a central issue, we want to think of how we can build up and edify one another. And we all know that people feel loved by us if we listen to them and respect them in what they're saying instead of immediately engaging in argumentation with them. Of course, there's a time to speak the truth, isn't there? I'm not denying that. But may the Lord give us wisdom as to what the situation is before us. Fourth, the kingdom is not about doing what we want to do selfishly. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We could get the wrong idea about what the kingdom is about. Other religions have a wrong idea about what the kingdom is about. They think of the future in the kingdom as there's going to be great meals and pleasures evermore. Of course, there will be pleasures evermore, but not fundamentally physical pleasures. That's not the fundamental point of the kingdom, is it? It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is not about our freedom. The strong tend to say, No one's going to limit my freedom. I'm not going to walk on eggs around other people. But the kingdom is about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that spirit produces righteousness, peace, and joy. So the kingdom is not about our rights, but about encouraging others. It's about looking around at the congregation and thinking, who can I encourage and edify? especially perhaps a person that's more vulnerable and more weak in the faith. And we look around and say, who can I encourage and help in a particular way? The kingdom is not about following our preferences, but by being an agent of peace and joy in the lives of others. So when you plan your week, do you ever think, well, who can I meet with this week and encourage in the faith and strengthen and help. I think that's what Paul wants the strong to think of. Well, let me, let me go just briefly, really briefly. And I, I don't know if what I'm going to say here is helpful at all. But here's just a really brief attempt to say, how could Paul speak of destroying a brother for whom Christ died when we know from other scriptures that true believers will never fall away? You know, it's the same issue in Matthew 18. How can Paul, uh, Jesus, speak of little ones who believe in me being stumbling when we know true believers don't fall away. True believers aren't destroyed. And I take that as a given. I'm not going to defend that today. I don't have time. I take it as a given. True believers cannot and will not fall away. So why do they write this text the way they do? Why does he speak about destroying a brother for whom Christ died? Just very quickly. Paul wants the strong 
to be truly concerned about other believers. He doesn't want to blunt the warning given to the strong. He doesn't want them to ignore his advice by saying, well, if they fall away, they're not Christians anyway. The strong must take seriously their responsibility to build up others in the faith. They can't use their theology as an excuse not to love weaker brothers and sisters. Those who stumble and are destroyed, finally, at the end of the day, they weren't true believers. We know that from all of Scripture. They finally didn't belong to God. But that's not the point of these passages. That's not what the writers want us to think of in, this, in, this, in these texts. Paul uses the language of appearance here. In other words, we give every appearance of being a Christian, and Paul says, attend to that. He's not trying to answer the question here of whether true believers can fall away. His point is, don't injure those who claim to be brothers and sisters. Care for them. And God will handle, ultimately, their own relationship with God. Well, I close with a final comment. Paul says in verse 23, this is a good word for all of us, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If we're not trusting God, even if what we do externally conforms to goodness, it's sin. If it doesn't proceed from faith, if we don't do what we're doing because we're trusting God, it's sinful, ultimately. Because if it's not from faith, it brings glory to self rather than to God. So in every circumstance, God wants us to trust Him. And you can think, I don't know the circumstances in your lives, and maybe even I know you well, and I still don't know the circumstance in your life. But God is calling upon you and me today to trust him. He wants you to give yourself to him and to trust him with whatever you're going through, whether it's joyful or whether it's difficult. God is glorified in us when we depend upon him, when we recognize that he is our strength. And that's one reason he brings hard things into our lives. So we won't forget him. So there are mercy in that way, aren't they? So we will depend upon him and rest in him and find him to be the all-sufficient provider for our needs. If you're like me, you often find it hard to believe. So what do we do then? We know this, don't we? At least most of us know this. What do we do? We pray, don't we? Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Help. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust you. Let's pray. And Father, that is our prayer, that you would enable us to trust you and to look to you for every good gift and strength for what you've called us to do. Lord, we do confess, I confess, how easy it is for us to forget about caring for, ministering to, edifying, strengthening others, how quick I am to want to just say my opinion 
about something instead of thinking about what would strengthen and help others, how easy it is to gather together and not to see the hurting person in our midst. So, Lord, we pray you'd give us eyes to see the vulnerable and the weak. We pray, Lord, you'd give us hearts that desire to minister and to care for others and strengthen them in the faith. Lord, we pray that you would make our body, which is already a place where love flows, a place where love flows more and more, and we see the presence of Christ in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.